Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. This is an episode with me and Helen, quite soon after we recorded the last one, but a lot has happened since, including in the House of Commons, and we are going to try and take a step back and see what's really at stake here. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. Normally it's Wednesday morning. Today, I think uniquely, we're doing another one on Thursday morning, late morning. The headlines in at least two papers this morning were that the Commons had reached boiling point last night, and it was pretty extraordinary. Helen and I both saw bits of it. I don't think we want to talk about who said what to whom. But there are still a whole series of questions that are going to have to be answered on both sides, some of them about domestic politics, some of them are tactical questions, and then wider questions about Europe. So we'll start maybe with the more domestic ones. So there's still a fundamental question here, which relates to some of our conversations this week about Italy. When does it make sense for the opposition to have an election? And there is a choice, and the choice has been made, but it may come up again in a different form, that it's better to keep Johnson twisting in the wind, in the phrase that's often used, to keep him hanging there, ideally past the 31st, and then go to the country, rather than risk going to the country now, given the polling situation, given his own... It may have changed even in 24 hours, but his own ratings being considerably higher than Jeremy Corbyn's. But I'm not certain which way it should go. And I think there are some questions, particularly for the SNP and the Liberal Democrats. If they just take a step back, strip out all of the heated rhetoric, just ask the basic question, when would we be best served by an election? It's at least possible that delaying it might be a mistake. I'm looking at Helen now. Do you think it might be a mistake? I, I think it's pretty hard to tell if you just look at it in a, from a, a tactical point of view in the case of the, the Liberal Democrats. I think in the, in the case of the SNP, I think that they have a, a reasonably clear interest in having the election sooner rather than later, though it still depends on what later that we're talking about because they've got to navigate their way around the Alex Salmon trial that will begin in the new year and it can't be ideal from their point of view if any general election sort of runs into that. If you were looking at it from the Liberal Democrats point of view and I think if you stop the clock at some point, I don't know, I've lost track of days this week rather, but let's, I think probably on Monday, you might say, well actually this is pretty good for the Liberal Democrats. To go earlier. To go earlier because from their point of view, Labour had had a wonderful conference in the sense of... Um, it was a disaster to that point. Yeah, to the point as far as Liberal Democrats have to compete for Labour votes, and that is not all that they're doing. Indeed, it's far from all that they're doing because most of the seats that they will be trying to win actually are held, presently held by the Conservatives. A Labour Party conference that shifted Labour as far to the left as that conference went and also sort of put on an exhibition, if you like, of, of Labour's divisions could only be music to to Liberal Democrat ears. But we're not on Monday any longer. We're now on Thursday and we've had another 72 hours of events. So that judgment might be harder to um, sustain. So Joe Swinson seems to have taken the decision or, or the Liberal Democrat leadership that the strategy is to 
go even further with the legislative route to try and box Johnson in to try and potentially force him to ask for an extension even sooner to try and get the thing that there is a majority in Parliament for, which is to request a delay in time. As you say, there's a polling issue here. The Lib Dems are doing pretty well and they have got a clear position. They've got the revoke position, which is much clearer in some respects than the Labour position. But in one respect, it's less clear because it's not clear what the Lib Dems do if Johnson were to get a deal. It's not clear what the Lib Dems would do if Johnson somehow manages to wriggle out of the mess that he's in. I suspect that for them, they'll take their chances because he probably won't wriggle out of the mess that he's in. But there is a risk, I think, in delay. I see why Labour is strongly incentivised to get Johnson past the 31st before going to the country. But it's more finely balanced for the Lib Dems, I think. It could be. But I think the question, though, does go beyond Brexit because of what has happened with the Labour Party over the last week. I'm not sure that anybody quite saw coming, certainly from outside the Labour Party, just how far to the left that the Labour Party manifesto at the next election could be. I mean, I think we have to sort of take some of it with a pinch of salt about whether some of these conference votes will end up in the in the manifesto. But it is just to sort of characterise it, it's well to the left of John McDonnell. Yeah. And or it, at least on some issues. It, it is well to the... I think the most important thing, if we stand back, is it's, it's well to the left of the position that the Labour Party fought the last election on. So that should be good news for the Liberal Democrats. So it's possible that even if Johnson were able to wriggle out of his Brexit problems and Britain were to leave the European Union and then there were a general election, that the events of the last week have still been to the net benefit of the Liberal Democrats in terms of their competition with Labour and that because there are sufficient numbers of former Conservative voters who are appalled by Johnson, that the other events of this week have also strengthened the Liberal Democrats in that on that side. Because I think with 2017, the test of the manifesto, I think of it as the Polly Toynbee test. So she had grave doubts about Jeremy Corbyn and wrote lots of things that were pretty sceptical about him. And then she saw the manifesto and she described it as a cornucopia mm. of delights. So I always think, will Polly Toynbee <laughs> describe it as a cornucopia of delights or not? I suspect not. Mm. Some of the things that have been adopted here, it does move the dial a long way. There must be a possibility, given that quite a few of the things that the conference was advocating and has now adopted as Labour Party policy for now anyway, including in relation to immigration, the really radical, more radical than John McDonnell stance on private education to abolish it and as it were redistribute the property. There was the poll of Labour members that showed them, I think, out of line with centrist opinion on almost every issue, abolition of the monarchy and everything else. That kind of programme is not going to win 42% of the vote or 40% of the vote as in 2017. This is just a rough figure, but my guess is that there's probably a constituency between 20 and 25% of the electorate for whom this programme might be really, really appealing. But this could be a unique moment in British Mm. history where maybe the only chance in some respects for that programme to become the programme of a future government because of the kind of this week has captured it, the bizarre confluence of a conference that didn't get the coverage it would have done under other circumstances and a government that may be completely trapped. This may be the moment, the only moment, where a far-left programme could become the policy of a government. I think... No. I doubt it. I'm not suggesting anything is impossible um, at the moment. I think that if you say, okay, how can Labour do better than one might expect or better than people that you and I at least might 
expect in relation to the manifesto that it may end up with? The answer would be because there still would be sufficient anti-Tory tactical voting and that the effect of what's happened in the last few days in regard to Johnson is to increase the anti-Tory tactical voting coalition so that there will be enough seats where that would mean returning Labour MPs for that to be the case. I still think you've got the fundamental political problem that Labour faces and that is its weakness in Scotland. That hasn't really changed since 2011. So you'd need something that was going to be a coalition of some kind for this Labour government that would involve the SNP. Once you that is politically acknowledged, as it was actually in, in 2015, then you bring a whole other set of questions into play about the consequences of asymmetrical devolution, the West Lothian question, etc. So I, I still think that even though everything seems like it's up for grabs at the moment, there are still some underlying political realities that probably aren't moving. And Labour's weakness in Scotland, I think, is one of them. Does it touch on that question we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which is conventionally in British politics, because it's a system that's designed to produce party government in Westminster with clear or at least relatively clear majorities. And so manifesto commitments then get more or less enacted, often less, but at least that's the idea. But if it's by far likely, at least for one side, that coalition is the only way you're going to get into power. A radical manifesto has a completely different character to it because it becomes a bargaining mm. point. It's, a, it's the start of a negotiation. It's not the thing on which you were elected. It's the thing on which you won enough seats to negotiate with another party to form a government. So say it's a Lib Dem, SNP, Labour coalition, and also say there is tactical voting that's in some sense also contrived by the parties themselves in England including some of the new independents as well. A radical Labour manifesto then just becomes something that gets discussed and watered down and eventually merged into something much more familiar. Possibly. I mean, I think, though, we should bear in mind that if we'd been talking earlier in the week at the time when the Labour Party conference was still going on and talking about the impending resignation of Andrew Fisher... The author of the 2017 manifesto. manifesto, ...who, in one of his WhatsApp messages, is basically saying the Corbyn project can't succeed. You might have said that what was going on at at the Labour Party conference was actually not a fight about the next general election, but a fight about the future leadership of the Labour Party post... Corbyn and an attempt to make sure that they to try to make sure that the Corbyn part of the party remains in control of the party once Corbyn is no longer the leader. So I don't think that we can sort of factor out internal Labour Party political struggles in terms of understanding what is happening at the moment where Labour are concerned. And to what extent in this wider coalition negotiation is the question of Scottish independence and the next Scottish referendum are going to be central because that's also been put on the back burner but it's the rumbling issue in British politics in this whole period of relative turmoil that more or less kick-started that period and it's not going away and it could become very acute. I mean there are key questions of timing for the SNP as you say there's a contingency around the trial of Alex Salmond but also that question that they have to answer which is not so much when do they want a general election but when do they want Indy Ref to do you have any sense of Labour's position on this? Do you have any sense of do you have any sense of anyone's position on this? Including some people say, well, a Tory leader, perhaps even including the current Tory leader, has got to be willing to trade the second referendum for support for whatever deal resolves for now the Brexit crisis. 
When John McDonnell tried to move Labour's position, or appeared anyway, to try to move Labour's position into supporting a, a second referendum, there was a fairly ferocious backlash in parts of the party, not least Scottish Labour. So this is a, a very deeply complicated question from Labour's point of view. Unless something changes in Scotland, though, it's quite hard to see how Labour gets to the point of being in government without an arrangement with the SNP. And it's quite hard to see how they have an arrangement with the SNP that doesn't include a commitment to the the second referendum and if which seems to be the case their new position on Brexit is second referendum it's quite hard I think to legitimate a second referendum on Brexit whilst at the same time trying to argue that there can't be a second referendum on Scottish independence so all that would suggest I think sort of push in the direction of supporting a second referendum on Scottish independence but I don't think we should underestimate how much opposition there is to that position you know, within the Labour Party. The Labour Party is a party of, or has historically been, the party of the Union, the, of the Anglo-Scottish Union. It would have to be a very different kind of party for that not to be the case. And I, I think that one way of thinking about you know, like what's going on at the moment for everybody in some sense, politicians and, and voters alike, is to, th- is to think that there are kind of a set of questions about what, what is the most important to you. So one way of looking at it might be, I think for some of the MPs, is, is like, well, what's the most important? Where you stand on Brexit, whether you're prepared to have Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister or not, or where, and where you stand on the, the union. And I think that in some sense our politics is hardening into everybody having to figure out which of those that they think is the thing that they have the strongest commitments on. So if you put it like that, are we just as divided on those questions as on the ones that we're familiar that we're divided with? So if, if, if it's not remain or leave, but... Which is your priority? Not having Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, getting Brexit resolved one way or the other, or either preserving or bringing to an end the union. Isn't there still a pretty fundamental split that people would divide up? Could you form new alliances or coalitions through that kind of set of divisions? Possibly. I think, though, we might, you know, like add in not having. Boris Johnson is Prime Minister, but the fact is is that the Prime Minister and Parliament at the moment is maintaining him as Prime Minister. And I think that it's still the case, as I've said before, that part of the reason why significant numbers of MPs are doing that is because they don't want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister. I think working out what the possible coalitions around those choices are, though, is hard when I'm not sure how many people have quite worked out which of those things they actually are most concerned about. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's often said of this parliament that 
was described by Geoffrey Cox as having no moral right to sit because, in his terms, it had simply refused to take responsibility for any decision. That's essentially what he said, except for the decision to seek a delay to Brexit, that this parliament knows what it's against, but it doesn't know what it's for. And we'll have to see because there may be moments coming up quite soon where there will be agreement around certain decisive steps. But there's a bigger question, which is for the people who either want to stop Brexit from happening or want to have a very different kind of future relationship post-Brexit with the EU than the one that's being contemplated currently by the Johnson government, whether and how they can get agreement around that question. Now, that You've raised this often, that deep question for the, let's call it the Remain side, which is what is Britain's future relationship with Europe? I don't think we've even begun to see how you form the necessary coalitions to pass legislation in Parliament, but also to take a message in an election to the voters, maybe not the next election, but the one after that. Or are we starting to see the shape of that? No, I don't think that we are. And I think that there's another issue that came out of the Labour Party conference, which is the question of the franchise if we are indeed heading towards a, a second referendum. Because one way out of the substantive difficulty about Brexit at the moment would be for Parliament to pass a withdrawal bill, whether it's changed or having codicils added to it or whatever, and then add to that saying that there must be a referendum then on whether to accept Parliament's passage of the Withdrawal Act. And do all that before an election. And do all that before an election. Now, I think that has a host of problems because we don't have a government at the moment, but let's leave that minor problem aside. Is there any basis for agreement amongst the MPs that would have to vote for that referendum on what the franchise for that referendum would be. And what Keir Starmer seemed to be suggesting at the conference was is that they will be in favour of extending the franchise, making it different than it was in the 2016 referendum. And I think there has to be a real question about whether some of the Conservatives who would might think that this is the least bad way out would really be willing to support a referendum on that basis. And as I understand it, extending it in two ways, so both dropping it from 18 to 16 and also making it all UK residents, not UK citizens. Yeah. And you can understand why both for the people for whom questions of Brexit are the priority, that might cause some anxiety because it would seem to make it quite hard for the Brexit side to win that referendum. Mm. But if it also sets a precedent for general elections, you can see why many Conservatives would be made very anxious by that. And I think it, you know, it may also have consequences for a Scottish referendum as well on the the, resident the residency issue. Again, we've, we've discussed this a lot, but that question of how this parliament, without a general election, could agree the rules for a second referendum. Now, there is a way that you could sequence it so that, and again, like you, I have my doubts about whether you can do this with this government. And again, we don't know what an alternative government would be. But you could sequence it that you pass a withdrawal act with an understanding that there will be a second referendum, say within six months. And then having done that, you then try and pass the legislation, having agreed that there'll be a second referendum about what sort of referendum it will be. I think if you try and pass a withdrawal act at the same time as agreeing the rules for a referendum, you won't be able to pass the act. But there's still going to be lots and lots of questions almost immediately that a second referendum becomes both government policy and in some sense the law of the land about how it would work. I mean, you might be able to sequence it that you defer the difficult questions until it becomes a fait accompli and then you just have to work them out. 
But any shrewd politician wouldn't let that happen because you don't want to let something become a fait accompli if the thing that then happens is your nightmare. I think as well you've got to work out how it's going to fit with the EU and then fit with EU law and what the standing of a withdrawal act is that's been passed but doesn't actually have any purchase until it's been confirmed by you know a referendum because in terms of being in the EU's legal and constitutional order, we are either in or we're out. And as things stand, we're in until the 31st of October without getting an extension. And then if the extension is granted in terms of the Ben position, we're in until the 31st of, of January. So whatever we do in relation to this has to be an agreement with the EU. Is it possible then, so the MEPs continue to sit, nominating commissioners, we continue to play our role. Say, say this scenario happens, that we pass some kind of um, placeholder withdrawal mm. agreement and then with understanding there'll be a second referendum, say, within six months. Is it possible, I mean, Macron's always the person who comes to mind, but it could be someone else. They just say, this is insane. This is way too risky. Better, actually, just to force the issue on the 31st, force it back as either revoke or leave without a deal than to allow the UK to continue to play its full part in EU affairs under these conditions? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was always a pretty strong case from the EU's point of view, going back to the run-up to the 31st of March, to say you have to choose, to say you have to choose between revoke passing the withdrawal agreement or leaving without an agreement, because essentially the consequences of giving us already what the two extensions and would now be going to third is is that all the problems that we have in our politics are things that we then ask the EU to deal with when there are many, many other things that they would much rather be dealing with. Now, that isn't to say that there might not be some governments in the within the EU that still think that all this is worth it to try to keep Britain in the EU and hope that the Remain position will win in the end. But I think it is pretty clear that the number of those governments who think like that is diminishing, shall we say. It's probably a, a small minority now. I do think, as I've said on a number of uh, occasions, that the Remain side has to have some kind of argument from the point of view of the EU, not necessarily from the point within domestic British politics, but from the point of view of the EU about how Britain's membership of the EU can be stabilised. Because it isn't the case that I think that you can have a member state that has got this much bitter contest about whether that state should be inside the EU or not. Now, you can go back to the late 70s and the early 80s when Labour was in opposition between 79 and 83, where the opposition party in this country was committed to withdrawing from the European community as it then was. But you know, the EC of, um, of the early 1980s is not like the European Union. It is now. And so I think that even before you get to the question about Britain as a non-Euro member, the position of freedom of movement in relation to which how the, the Eurozone, London's position as, a, as an offshore financial centre for the Euro, all the issues that pushed the dynamics that led ultimately to Cameron making um, his referendum promise, even if you push those aside, you've still got to answer the question, how can you make this domestic politics fit with the way in which the European Union works? And I'm not really hearing anyone on the Remain side who's who's giving any kind of, I'm not saying they're not giving any thought to it, but I'm not hearing anything that sounds like a coherent answer to that. So we don't know when there's going to be an election. There, in a other things being equal world, might be ways in which 
not the Labour Party, but other opposition parties were persuadable that doing it on the October the 15th, although the timing is really, really tight now, I think actually we don't, we, there then have to be legislation changing the amount of time that you need, working days you need for an election. But given the state of feeling, the level, the temperature, let's call it, of British politics, and what it would be for people to make agreements across these divides, it does seem unlikely. And so we're going to come to some big crunch points around the letter and the Ben Act and so on and the Supreme Court again and, and all of that. There is just that basic question of how long you can keep going at this temperature. I mean, it's, it's regardless of which side you're on, how psychologically wearing it was just to be a sort of passive recipient of the debate in the Commons, just to watch it, and then to be a recipient of the commentary that surrounded it. I mean, I think we have to remember, like, for every thing that's said in the Commons that it's amplified, and or at least it's it kind of echoes through social media in a way that is to experience it, just to try and read it, is um, it's relentless. It is partly a function, as you say, of the fact we haven't got a government. We haven't got a government, and yet it's got to go through the motions of governing. But it's really hard to see how this could be sustained psychologically for much longer. I mean, I agree. I mean, it is um, it is psychologically exhausting. And I think that the fact that there there isn't any way really that can be, if you like, mapped out that right now can take us out of this political space and all the psychological distress and anxiety that goes with it you know, is, is incredibly difficult. Having said that, in part for the reason that you say is, is that this kind of intensity can't last, it never lasts in the end. Something, I don't know what, because I have no idea whatsoever, but something will be different within month, two months than it is now, I think. We've mentioned them before. We do have a couple of films on YouTube, short films answering some big questions. One, who is Joe Swinson? Another, who will succeed Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party? We think they're worth watching. You can find them on YouTube if you just search for Talking Politics. We've recorded another interview which is going to go out this weekend. That's with Ian McEwan talking about his new novel, The Cockroach, but a lot of other things too, including something that Helen and I just touched on there, which is the Labour Party's attitude in the early 1980s to the European Union. Ian McEwan's previous novel had a counterfactual history in which that Labour Party gets into power. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.